You're listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Octavio Fernandez y Mostajo. My name is Claire Perini-Williams. Lisa Perini-Williams. <laughs> and welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. <laughs> Wait, people, did you know her full name is Claire Lisa Perini-Williams? Yeah. She should definitely like introduce herself like that. Hello, my name is Claire Lisa Perini Williams. So it's, lo- <laughs> just it's sound like, more you know, like just sound a little bit more like as mine. Um, yeah, our friends, you are in for a treat when you listen to today's podcast. I mean, every week's a treat, yeah. but this um, this one was a, a great conversation with Rod Wilson around mental health. A whole lots of different things around mental health, um, in particular things around depression and anxiety, but also. Um, expectations and mm. um, psychology and emotions more generally and how we understand that biblically and scripturally and oh it was a it was a great conversation yeah for for, for people of, from a newer generation like me uh, rod left region like before I arrived but for people that don't know he used to be regent's head what we he call used it to head. be the president of Regent College from the 2000 to 2015. Fifteen Col- years. Fifteen years. Oh, mm-hmm. And of course, Claire was there when he was there, so she 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 graduated when, she, when when Rod. And was if you there. don't yeah, if you don't know anything else yeah. about Rod, he's a trained clinical psychologist originally, uh, and then he pursued theological training after completing his doctoral work, and he's been mm-hmm. involved in counselling and consulting for. Over thirty years, so he's and yeah. lots of his areas of expertise are um, relational dynamics, counselling, leadership, anger, community, pastoral care, emotional intelligence. Um, he's, yeah, yeah, he's a, he's mean, a phenomenal this, guy. If you, if you listen to all that, you know, the president, the clinical psychologist, like I don't know if I'm going to understand anything he's saying. He's so conversational. He's not, you know, using those complicated terms. Even. It was a great conversation, so easy to talk to and, and funny and yeah, this is, you're, go, you're really going to enjoy this. And we talk a little bit about COVID-19 and, and uh, what like, the repercussions on like on the psyche of people and depression. And So it's, it's really going to connect with you guys. Mm-hmm. Enjoy our conversation with Dr. Rod Wilson. Rod Wilson. Rod, welcome to the Regent College podcast. Thank you, Claire. It's good to it's good to have you. Um, we um we thought we'd you know just talk about something that you know a little bit about, um, and this kind of topic of mental health and emotions and maybe anger and who knows what else. Um, but I thought I'd, I thought we'd start with a bit of a a question that um would be good maybe a good launching pad for us. Um, you've said before a bad understanding of the nature of Jesus is going to lead us to an unbiblical understanding of emotions. Tell us, yeah. tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and this has to do a lot with our, our imagination, right? And, and even, even uh, movies about Jesus. Because, you know, you see Jesus, and he's always in, in, in full control, meaning that he shows no emotion. If he has anger, we'll never know. If he's happy, we'll never know because he's always, quote-unquote, in control of his emotions, right? And, you, you know, he's God, right? So Yeah, know. I mean, it's a, it's a big subject. Uh, I think a really a cross-disciplinary subject, too, not just in the psychological world, but the theological and biblical world as well. I mean, I... Maybe the first comment I'll make is to go to the, the 
Christmas Carol, one that I love. Um, you know, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Mm-hmm. And I find that Carol uh, a really good summary of a lot of church history and theology around how we understand Jesus, because you know, if you think of the environment, here's this new baby that's just been born, and it's an infant, and any of us have been around infants, you know, one of the things they do with regularity and frequency is cry. Uh, and he, you know, he's in a stable, and there's animals around, and people, and people bringing gifts, and all the rest of it, but mm-hmm. apparently, according to that carol, he doesn't cry, which I think is the way a lot of Christians want to read Jesus, I think, Octavio, that's mm-hmm. what you just said, that somehow Jesus is calm and cool and without emotion. But the reality is, if, if Jesus is created human uh, or born human and is a reflection of the Father, then I think anything we see in the Father, we also are going to see in Jesus. So you go through the whole canon of Scripture I mean, I think of Genesis 6, to me, as one of the really formative passages in this, that, you know, when God had seen the world that he made and sort of the sinfulness of humanity, um, it, his heart was filled with grief, and he felt badly that he had made people, uh, and he experienced grief and pain. And you think, there we are in Genesis 6, very early in the biblical narrative, that God's already got a heart filled with pain and grief and loss, And then when you read the Gospels, um, and you don't do the sort of content obsession with the Gospels, but you actually see Jesus walking in in human flesh and human form, there's so many examples of, I mean, I think uh, in Mark chapter 3, where he was going to heal with the man with the shriveled hand on the Sabbath, and, you know, the the religious people were saying, you know, do you know what day it is? Like, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Mm. And it says in Mark 3 and 5, you know, he looked at them in anger, deeply distressed at the stubbornness of their hearts. You know, you slow that passage down, you know, you don't read at the speed with which we read the Bible, but you slow it down and say, like, it's not even what he said, it's like, it he was filled with anger, and he looked at them in anger, deeply distressed at the stubbornness of their hearts. And you think there was even a nonverbal expression for Jesus of anger mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very powerful. And, you know, John the Baptist dies, and Jesus disappears. Like the biblical record is, like he went away by himself. And you've got to imagine with that relationship with John the Baptist that Jesus was experiencing mm-hmm. deep feeling. You go to the Garden of Gethsemane. And, you know, a passage I think we like to avoid because it shows Jesus in a, in a really emotive state, struggling with the Father about what's going to happen. Um, so I think if we, you know, if we believe that we're created in the image of God, and we believe sort of in the argument of Colossians that Jesus is the express image of, of the Godhead and the image of the Father on earth, um, then we have to see Jesus as having emotions, and then by implication— because we are created in, in God's image, then we too have emotions. So I think there's a sense, I, I worry sometimes in the social sciences that the affirmation of emotions that doesn't have theology in it misses the fact that as Christians who understand the Jesus we follow, emotion should be really central for us. Yeah. I mean, it, it feels like like the Bible desperately needed emojis. 
<laughs> yes. Maybe not the Bible, but the like the Bible writers will be like, yeah, well, yeah. we could have done well with emojis back then. Yeah. And yeah, in in this issue of, of being emotional, it goes goes like if you, when you talk about women in li- in leadership and and some of the issues, like you know, they're too emotional. Like you don't want an emotional person being a leader, and and that's an argument people would use even again against uh, Pentecostals. And in that emotion, it's used a lot of maybe I would say most of the time negatively. If you show a lot, like if if the if the preacher's crying, you'd be like, oh, okay, come on, stop it, man. You're making me uncomfortable. Come on, man, man up. I, I, I don't know, but it 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 is taken negatively. And no, I think that's very true. And I think part of the you know, the way this is constructed over the years, and I mean, the you know, the early church fathers and the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon were struggling with, you know, what, what does it mean for Jesus to be divine and human? So this is not a contemporary subject, it's a, mm-hmm. a subject that goes right back in church history. But I think that notion, I think you've expressed it well, Octavio, that I think in, a, in the economy of the psyche, I think for many people, emotions are seen as lacking and deficient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a result, the cognitive is overvalued. And I, I love uh, Parker Palmer, the Quaker writer on this. He says, how did so many disembodied concepts emerge from a tradition whose central commitment is the word become flesh? Mm-hmm. You know, and like we follow a Jesus that was embodied and part of embodiment is that we're cognitive, emotional, and volitional creatures. Mm-hmm. And we sometimes we exercise those poorly. And I think sometimes we talk about emotionalism or people being too emotional. We're half right because, you know, a bit like the cognitions. I mean, we can have bad thoughts. Uh, it's a bit like the volition. We can make bad decisions. And so in the emotion, they're not always on track. Sometimes we overreact. Mm. Sometimes we get triggered by something but i think what's happened historically is emotion has been paralleled with weakness and then when you throw chauvinism into that mm. where you know men are perceived as stronger than women then then it all fits really well like men are in control men are in charge uh, men are you know well-developed cognitions and so if a woman expresses emotion well that's an indication of weakness and of course, now I think the younger generation is recognizing that those are cultural stereotypes. They're not endemic to who we are. Yeah. And that men, as well as women, have the capacity for emotion. Yeah. And I think part of the issue also is we categorize emotions in sometimes in two good emotions, bad emotions. You know, fear, bad. Be, uh, brave, good. Uh, uh, I don't know. Yeah, so I, that that creates an issue as well of good emotions and bad emotions. Emotions I'm going to allow myself to feel. Emotions I'm not going to allow myself to feel. Emotions I'm going to allow myself to show. And emotions I'm definitely not not going to let anybody know I'm feeling those kinds of emotions. And and then we have an internal battle. It can get. I don't want to use the word crazy, but it can get crazy sometimes when when you have two camps of bad emotions and good emotions. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the other thing that, uh, you know, in the last 25 years in the world of neuroscience, one of the things we've learned is that the way the brain is constructed with the amygdala and the neocortex, the amygdala being the feeling brain and the neocortex being the thinking brain, you know, we have pretty good science now to suggest that all of us have a brain that has capacity to respond 
with instinctive emotion as well as the capacity to respond with content and logic and rationale. And the degree to which those are integrated well is where health is found and maturity is found. But if we start questioning the one or the other, uh, then we're actually denying how we're created. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, God is the source of the amygdala and the neocortex. <laughs> yeah. So to, you know, start playing down part of the brain. And then the other part, too, mm-hmm. what you did, Octavio, that I think is important for Christians in this, is I think then what Christians do is they add a theological layer on top of this. Yeah. yeah. So I'm oh, hearing yeah. a lot of this, you know, we're recording this in the early stages of the pandemic, and I'm hearing a lot now online about people saying, you know, we need to have faith and not fear. And now we've got this construct, which is, you know, profoundly dualistic, that somehow if you're really spiritual you won't fear the pandemic. Well, mm. you know, I find that a complete denial of my humanity. I mean, I've right now, as we're having this conversation, I have a friend uh, 10 minutes from here on a ventilator in a hospital with the mm. coronavirus. Uh, he's the same age as me. We're good friends. And he may die. Um, mm. I have some fear about that. He and I were in contact a number of weeks ago. I've been in contact with people who were in contact with him a couple of weeks ago, I have some natural human fear that I might have picked it up from him or one of his friends. I also have fear that he might pass away. And that's my human response to a a very normal, I think it's a normal response. And to say, like, do I believe that God is in control? Do I Am I trusting God with his life? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother's in a senior's home 3,000 miles from here. Um, you know, a lot of Canada seniors' homes are the hotspot. So I'm fearful that she'll get it. She's 95, and I'm fearful she may die, and I won't be able to see her. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want a construct that says to me, if I have faith in God, I really shouldn't have any fear about my friend or any fear about my mother. <clears throat> I've been thinking about Jesus' words about, you know, do not worry about tomorrow because today has enough worries of its own and there's actually then an assumption that actually there will be worries like it's not saying do not what he's not saying do not worry at all he's saying don't worry about tomorrow because the wor- there's enough worry right now so it's yeah is it like what's the relationship between worry and fear i mean are they sort of the same and i don't know that i'm just it's yeah there's an assumption that we just we will worry we will fear yeah, and I think, you know, the, the Sermon on the Mount in Philippians 4 are interesting in this. You know, in, in Philippians 4, Paul talks about, you know, don't be anxious about anything but everything by prayer and supplication, bring your request to God. Mm-hmm. And Jesus talks about, you know, don't worry about tomorrow, don't worry about what you're going to wear, don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink. And I think the sense there, you know, I think if, if Jesus was using contemporary language in those uh, passages, or Paul was in Philippians 4, I think the language would be, don't be obsessively overwrought by, like, when you think of the coronavirus, for Mm. example, like, if you're obsessively overwrought, like, all you think about, all you talk about is the virus, you're slipping out of faith in God, and you're becoming obsessed, Mm. and you're excessively worrying about something. Um, So when Jesus says, like, don't worry about what you're going to wear, don't worry about what you're going to eat, don't worry about you know, what you're going to drink. 
like this morning, uh, we had some muffins in the house earlier in the week. And, you know, I was thinking, what do I want for breakfast? Do I want cereal or do I want a muffin? So I thought about it. And then I, I said to Bev, have we still got any muffins left? And she said, I'm not sure. So we went and checked. So I was thinking about food. I was thinking about what I was going to have for breakfast, but I hadn't, I wasn't up all night overwrought about what I was going to have for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. It was a genuine concern. And when I get up this morning, you know, I, I picked a clean shirt to put on. So I was thinking about what clothes I was going to wear today. But I think what Jesus is saying is if the kingdom of God is not the core focus of what we're doing, Mm. then what happens is other things slip into the middle. And there are people that all they think about is what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, and what they're going to wear. Like, that's their life. Mm. And, and they worry about those things. And the kingdom of God and his righteousness isn't important to them. And I think it's a great way of understanding this virus. Like, I think if the virus is front and center for all of us, our faith has slipped. But the virus is mm. in our vision, yeah. and it is yeah. in our awareness, and lots of, I mean, I'm in a generation, you know, sometimes I listen to the news, and they say, you know, the vulnerable generation over 60, and I think, oh, those poor people. <laughs> and I remember, oh, that's me. Yeah. You know, so then, so like, watching the news now, I get a little more fear, and I'm always watching the graph. I mean, how many people between 60 and 70 are dying, you know, so... But I'm not, like, I'm not awake every night worrying about it, but I do worry, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that distinction of, you know, it's, worry can be a lifestyle or worry can be a momentary feeling. Yeah, mm. yeah. Good word. Yeah, and, and sort of thinking as well about sort of, um, sort of anxiety more broadly and then um, de- depression and anxiety sort of more broadly as well, you know, it's, it seems as though um, – those things are increasing, you know, aside from the kind of present moment, those things seem to be increasing in the world that we're in. Um, do you think that's true? Is it, is it getting worse? Um, or are that we're, is it just that we're more aware and that we're talking about it more? What, what do you think about, or are they not even the right questions to ask? Yeah. No, it's an important question because I think it is true. I mean, I, I think I look, you know, I did my training in the early 70s, and I remember in the context of the church back then, I mean, pursuing the field of clinical psychology was considered running with the devil, you know, like that was just wrong and bad, and Christians didn't do that because Christians didn't have problems. So I think 40 years ago, uh, there certainly was a sense in which it was better to keep these things underground and not talk about them, and the sounds of silence kind of dominated. Mm. When it came to mental health issues. So I think that's true. And I think now we're living in a culture of more transparency, more authenticity, more openness. And so people are more willing to talk about it. So I think that's one piece for sure. I think the other piece is the stigma is not the same as it used to be in the culture. Mm. I think yeah. in yeah, the sure. past, if you, you know, I've struggled with low grade depression almost my whole life. And, you know, if I said that 40 years ago, people would look at me funny. Mm. Now, um, you know, I still get some people look at me funny when I say that, but most people go, yeah, me too. Or, you know, I have a friend who struggles with that or is on the same medication you are or whatever. Uh, so I think there's less stigma, which I think then makes people to come out more. I think there's also less shame. Mm. And shame is an interesting dynamic when it comes to our personal narrative i think you know we go back to the garden i mean the first thing that happens when you experience shame is you hide 
And I think there's been a lot of hiding, particularly amongst Christians uh, in these areas. And I think there's less shame now in some of these areas. You know, I think there's the, the more diagnosis, more accurate diagnosis is happening. So I think that's bringing more situations to the surface. I think the other one, and maybe this is the last one, I think the culture now is, I mean, we can phrase this in two ways. I think the culture is not made for the way we're created, and we are not created for this kind of culture. So I think the pace, um, the intensity, the hyperactivity, the overperformance now that's expected in the culture, particularly Western culture, mm. is not the way we're built. We're not wired for this. Um, and I think, I love the book uh, titled by Carl Honore called In Praise of Slowness. Mm. And, you know, he argues in that book that one of the things that characterizes contemporary culture is we're going so fast now that slow doesn't have any virtue or value anymore. Um, and I think that plays a role in increasing mental health issues for sure that, you know, we're just, the pace at which we're living is not conducive to good mental health. This, this might, might, you know, people might get angry with this question, but it's, it's coming from, uh, a guy that was raised in a quote unquote third world, third world majority world country, Bolivia. And, and sometimes it feels that, you know, Of course, there's a bunch of people with struggling with depression in Bolivia and Africa and Australia, everywhere. But sometimes it feels that depression is sort of a first world problem in the sense that entitlement has a lot to do with depression. It feels that a lot of people are more entitled, let's say, in the first world, and they feel like they deserve to get things, and when they don't... Uh, this becomes an issue. This this might be a really myopic sort of uh, uh, question, but I've heard this more than once. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm glad you asked the question because I think that question is being asked. And as you said, you know, in spite of our emphasis on inclusivity in the culture, there's still some questions apparently you're not supposed to ask. So <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're asking one of those questions. I mean, I think... I would want to distinguish between genuine clinical depression and a sense of personal angst and discomfort. Yeah, please, yeah. And I think, you know, clinical depression, which we know enough from a medical scientific standpoint, apart from anything psychological, you know, is a real thing that people experience. And there's a certain set of symptoms a certain set of issues that are going on, uh, people with significant clinical depression, you know, many of them can't get out of bed in the morning, literally. Uh, it's not because they have a bad attitude or whatever. They just, they're lost. And many of them have biochemical issues that need mm -hmm. to be addressed. Um, and I think there is that category of people. And that's certainly real um, as somebody who's battled clinical depression I mean, I would be the first person to say, I don't want it. So I'm not, you know, I'm not welcoming it. I, I would prefer I didn't have it. But yeah. when I have it badly, I know what it feels like. Um, there's another category, and this is where I think language becomes important. I think we often throw that term around in a very non-clinical, non-professional, non-diagnostic way. Like, how are you today, Claire? Ah, I'm a bit depressed. Mm. Well, you know, I'm a bit depressed probably is not accurate. Probably, you know, what's being said is, you know, I had a bad day or 
Yeah. You know, there's so much to do today. I, I had too much on, like I'm really tired. I've got a bit of a stomach ache or whatever. And it's our way of saying I feel down. Um, and I think this is where Octavio, this entitlement thing you're talking about fits in. I think sometimes with the normal things of life, you know, like, you know, my internet's too slow and I'm really frustrated about that. You think, oh, get a life. Like, what's your problem? Mm. You know, mm. your internet's too slow. I, I had this conversation a while ago with my internet service provider. They phoned up and said, you know, for another $5 a month, we can get your internet to go much, much faster. And I said, I'm not interested. And they said, but it'll go much faster. And I said, I'm happy <laughs> with the speed it is. <laughs> you don't want it faster? No, I don't want it faster. But Rod, you always want it faster. Come on, man. You always need to be Yeah, I know. And I think, why do I want it faster? It's already fast. I'm happy with it. Um, and then, you know, when I wasn't answering that question well, he said, well, you know, we can give you 200 more TV channels. And <laughs> I said, I have a job. Why do I want 200 channels? Like, but it's this whole sense of, you know, it's part of the entitlement culture. You deserve this, right? You, you can expect this. You can expect 200 channels. You can expect mm -hmm. faster internet. And then what's happening with this entitlement is then we think we deserve this and we expect it. And then we don't get it. We feel frustrated. That's not clinical depression. That's, that's sociocultural attitudinal problems, I think. Mm -hmm. that go way beyond clinical depression and actually get into some of the cultural messages around why is entitlement a way of being now. Yeah. Can you, can you, uh, you know, discern other uh, cultural triggers that are making this, uh, maybe not clinical depression worse, but uh, this sort of, what you say, anxiety and, and things we have to be in on the lookout, especially for our younger generations people that have kids especially teenagers now with like you know social media may be one of them but, but what other triggers do you see that we have to be on the lookout in, in in that kind of sense yeah well i think this goes back to how our sense of identity and self-image is formed like as we're growing up um like a baby is not born with a self-image Uh, you know, no three-year-old, three-month-old sits up in the crib and says, you know, my soul, my soul, why art thou so disguised <laughs> within me, right? Like, that, that doesn't happen. But what, what occurs over time is our self-image and our sense of identity and who we are actually becomes formed by our interaction with the world. This is where our, mm -hmm. our relationality comes in and the fact that we are, you know, relational people, we're communal people, and the way we're created. So... What this means then is the world around us help us define who we are. Mm. The problem then comes in an, in an internet culture and in a technology culture, we're now bombarded with messages like all the time on our very fast internet service provider. <laughs> and on one out of two, you know, yeah. one out of... You know, 200 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and what you pick up then is, you know, I'm 68. So what I pick up in the internet, because, you know, they've targeted me, what are all the other 68-year-olds in the world doing? And how are they living into this stage of life? Mm. And where are they going? And where are the cheapest cities to live around the world when you're in retirement years, et cetera, et cetera? And then what you do is start shaping who you are in light of what others tell you. 
And of course, for a, a child or a teenager, and this is where, you know, the bullying and things occur online. Mm. Like if, if I feel ugly, you know, I'm an eight-year-old girl and I feel ugly and I'm on the internet all day, what I'm going to see is these gorgeous eight-year-olds and gorgeous 10-year-olds, mm. perfectly dressed, you know, perfect parents, perfect life. And then I feel less than, I feel inadequate, I feel like I'm falling mm. short. And so this whole, you know, who you hang around with, who you're exposed to, actually starts creating a sense of who you are. And so a lot of mm-hmm. people on the internet now have concluded, I'm not enough. I'm, I'm falling short. I'm, I'm a person who's not meeting the grade. And those become significant triggers for feeling really inadequate, and hence depression, anxiety, you know, bullying, all those kinds of mm-hmm. things just are rampant now. Oh man, like I'm thinking, like I get affected a lot uh, sometimes with, with what I see in the internet in, in the sense of where should I be by now? Like yeah, I'm 33, I should have this, be this, uh, have, have done this, been traveled to so, so many countries and I'm 33, right? My brain is developed already, it's, it, they're done. But I, I, I think about those, you know, 12-year-olds, even 18-year-olds, their brains are not even yeah. de- developed yet. And yeah. and like all of them, because now I have a I have a ten month old baby, and he's like internet. He, he dominates the cell phones, and he's ten months old. And I don't know. I'm going to homeschool. He's I think <laughs> I'm homeschool. Yep, homeschool. Slow internet. Two channels. Slow internet. Two channels. New movement. Slow internet. <laughs> Yeah, so it, it, it is scary somehow. You know, it's interesting what you're saying, Octavio, because I think um, this is one of my explanations for why there's so much depression in graduate school. I mean, in my 15 years at Regent, mm. I mean, you know, I've worked in psychiatric hospitals and I've worked in graduate schools, and sometimes there's not a lot of difference between the two. Um, the number of people struggling with psychological issues at graduate school, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but one of them is... You're in a meritocracy. You know, you're around smart people who get good grades, and it's a theological school, so this is kind of an implicit test of how good a Christian you are. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you take a theology exam and you get B-, minus, um, that starts giving you a sense of your own identity. I mean, I remember when I did my theological training, one course I didn't do very well, And I was, you know, questioning, I, even in my dark times, got to questioning, you know, was I really a spiritual person because I didn't mm. get a great grade in this course? And you think, mm. it's like a letter grade in one course in your life, but why is this so significant? Yeah. And there's a lot of people walking around the atrium of a region feeling deeply inadequate, not because they are, but because there's somebody in their class who's really bright, and that's the new standard. Yeah. And has a British accent. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't know why you didn't say they have an Australian accent, Octavia. I'm kind of, kind of a bit offended by that. Do you not think Australian? There are reasons for that, Claire. They're yeah, that's another whole podcast in itself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's true. Well, and it's I'm thinking about other things you've said, Rod, as well about you know that hopelessness then comes from inadequate fixes, not the presence of problems. So there is an extent to which, yeah, there are going, there is problems. There's problems with how we engage with the internet. There's problems with how we think about ourselves in relation to other people. Um, so it's not, it's not that those things are non-existent, but there's some way, there has to be some way to kind of navigate through that so that we don't actually end up in sort of a depth of despair and hopelessness. Um, 
Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, when I was doing uh, clinical work uh, back in the day, I noticed that a vast number of people who came to me with a problem, actually the problem was not the problem, but all the solutions they had tried that hadn't worked. Right. And in, and they weren't aware of that distinction. Like as they talked about it, like they might say, for example, you know, um, I've been really struggling with, you know, some fear and anxiety around my family history and my background. And, you know, I was sexually abused. And so I feel really anxious when I'm sexually involved with my spouse. And, you know, I've tried to pray about it. I've read Psalms on it. I've been for spiritual direction. I've asked my pastor to pray for me and it won't go away. Mm. And the untangling of that is to say, you know what? If you've been sexually abused, that memory is not in your brain. It's actually in your body. Mm. That memory actually is a part of your physicality now. And that's a very normal human response. Most mm. people experience trauma. It's a physiological, physical reaction. And so feeling that when you're with your spouse in a loving, committed relationship, that makes total sense that you feel that way. So praying about it, reading the Psalms, having your pastor pray for you to get rid of it is not something that's going to work. Mm. And so part of the realization, and I think a lot of us get caught in this, part of the realization is, is that not that our problem is the problem, but we've got very inadequate and superficial solutions that aren't mm. working. And then we feel like, oh, I must be doing something more wrong. And then you add the Christian layer onto that, then many of us feel unspiritual. Mm-hmm. You know, that somehow not only am I not healthy psychologically, but I'm unspiritual because I can't get rid of this. When in fact, you may be experiencing a very normal human created experience. Mm-hmm. Rod, since you went there, now I have, I have some questions about p- people that, that have, you know, what you said in, in in your example, having sexually abused or physically abused, and and have that imprinted in their body, not just memory, but you know, it, it's a physical thing. Yeah. What what do you do? Because I've been around, you know, uh, some 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 friends or meeting a girl or whatever, and I'm you know sitting beside her and accidentally I don't know touch her in her her back or whatever, and you can see like a all of a sudden her face changes and immediately because because a man touched her or and i also see that with men so it's a physical response so in that case people that are listening to that be like okay i, I totally have that reaction and it's very physical yeah how do i work that when it's you know that physical it's, it's not something that i have to you know think a lot about it's just in, instantaneously i just feel a, I jump i there's a, a, a physical rejection what, what do you recommend that person to do well i think uh, a couple of things. It's a, it's a great question, and it's a really important area for people. I mean, I think to be with someone who has some expertise and understanding of these areas is really important. You know, usually that's a counselor, not always, but usually it's a counselor. Sometimes it's through reading. So I think if somebody was to read in the neuroscience, I mean, there's a book called The Body Remembers. So that would be one title that comes to mind on this subject. So to read a book, that talks about how does the body remember. And often the normalizing of this uh, takes a lot of the intensity away. When people realize, oh, this is not necessarily a problem. Mm. 
this is actually mm-hmm. a symptom oh, that I'm dealing okay. with of something else. So I think that's a good start. And then I think competent counselors uh, who have good training and good experience will be able to help people walk through this and deal with it. And I mean, in the example I gave, for example, often couples, I've dealt with couples over the years where this has been true of one of them, where they've had sexual abuse. And, you know, there's a lot of sexual issues in the marriage because mm-hmm. of it. And you can work with a couple, a competent counselor working with a couple can say, okay, now this is, you know, you don't need to personalize this because your spouse is feeling this way, but you need to go slower and you need to understand and and maybe you need to spread out the sexual contact or maybe there's some things that you shouldn't be doing right now because it's going to trigger too much. And so it's kind of scaling it down and allowing people to understand what's happening. And then I think... Once we understand what's going on and the normalcy of it, or the normalcy of it, um, I think it really helps us deal with the pain then and the struggle. We realize, you know, this makes sense. I had a, just to use a personal example, I had a very uh, serious car accident about 22 years ago on a major highway in Toronto, and um, I was hit from behind, and, and I won't go into all the details, but it's a pretty traumatic accident. And every time I drive by that intersection, when I go back to visit Toronto, my body starts reacting. Mm -hmm. Like I just have this flood of feelings Mm -hmm. and I want to cry. That's my impulse. And it's interesting because when I got out of the car and somebody brought me over to their car after I I was taken out of the car, I just, I burst into tears. And not because I was in pain, but just the trauma of the accident. And that's still in my body. When I go back to that intersection, it's still there. And I don't think that's, um, you know, a lack of faith or I've got psychological problems. It was, it was a traumatic event and it still affects me. Now, it's not debilitating to my life. I mean, I talk about, you know, sexual abuse or trauma of other sorts. That's going to, you know, that'll follow people people for a long time, and it can be quite debilitating to your mm-hmm. function. Uh, me going to that intersection mm-hmm. periodically isn't debilitating, but it, I still react to it. Mm. Yeah. I, we, we're getting close to the end, but I really want to ask this question, and I know you've been asked this question a bunch of times, is uh, sh- pe- people sometimes say, if you're a Christian, you have to go to a Christian psychologist or psychiatrist because some of the issues you have are you know rooted in your theology and if you go to an, a, a psychology that doesn't understand where you're coming from it's not going to be able to help you as a christian uh, psychologist would so uh would you recommend that do you think they have an like christian psychologists have a special insight that is the I don't know, that would really, really, really help you. So you would definitely recommend a Christian uh, psychologist or what do you think? Well, um, yeah, an important question and and one that has some complexity to it. A a couple of things I would say about that. Uh, First of all, I would want to distinguish between Christian character and competence. Um, I know lots of Christians who have suspect character and are not very competent. Uh, like across the board, I don't mean just in counseling, but just in general. Uh, I I know lots of non-Christians that have superb character and are very competent. So I think one of the things we want to distinguish here is the relationship between what it means to be Christian and to what degree is somebody a person of character and to what degree is somebody got competent. So Mm. let me go down those roads in some different ways. Um, I fly a lot, and so... 
you know, when I get on the plane, typically, as is always the case, you know, the pilot comes on, you know, good morning, you know, Captain Smith, you know, welcome aboard, blah, blah, blah. So if I get in a plane one day and the pilot comes on and says, hello, I'm Captain Smith, you know, I've, I love Jesus. I've had a personal relationship with Jesus my whole life. I've never had a flying lesson, uh, but I really, <laughs> you know, I've got great character and I love my wife and kids. And, you know, I, I'm really glad to have you on board. I'm out of there. Like I could care, I could care less whether he's a raving atheist. I don't really, it doesn't matter to me. Like I want confidence. So, I think one of the things we've got to grapple with here is the assumption that every Christian is competent and every Christian is not competent, to me, is a theological error. I don't think the Bible actually talks a lot about competence, um, and conversion and character, to me, are not about competence either. Like, you can be very, like, I had a heart attack a few years ago. I have an extremely competent cardiologist, um, I don't know where he stands religiously, and frankly, I don't care. Like, I'm not really interested. Um, I want to know he's competent. So I think that's one variable we want to look at. The other one we want to look at is to be sure that a Christian who's in counseling is competent, because there are Christian counselors who are not competent. So the assumption that you've made a commitment to Jesus Christ, to me, does not automatically assume you're competent at what you do. There are incompetent Christian drivers. There are incompetent Christian mothers. There are incompetent Christian mechanics. Uh, and so there are incompetent Christian counselors. So I think that's also true. And we need to be careful that when somebody hangs their shingle out and says, I'm a Christian and I'm doing counseling, that is not a guarantee of competence. Mm. On the other side, there are people in the, uh, that are not Christian who do have competence and can be very helpful, and many of them are extremely respectful of faith. And I'm one of those people who thinks one of the great advantages of postmodernity is there is much more tolerance and acceptance of a pluralicity of faiths or a plurality of faiths mm -hmm. than there was 40 years ago. So there's a lots of very tolerant, very accepting, very inclusive non-Christians uh, who are extremely helpful to Christians and can work within their faith system mm -hmm. out of respect and tolerance. I mean, I don't understand it all, but they will work within that. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's a complex question. Ideally, and let me finish with this. Ideally, a competent Christian who's well-trained and well-experienced that knows their stuff and is trying to be a counselor who's counseling in a way that's consistent with what it means to be Christian, that's the ideal. Mm. But having accepted Jesus Christ as personal Savior when you were eight and having an MA in counseling doesn't automatically make you a competent Christian counselor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm so sad that our time is done. Rod, just talking to you makes me miss you, seeing you around at Regent all the time. Oh, thank you. Well, the feeling's mutual, Claire. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks so much for your time. And thanks for, um, yeah, I just, it's always, I always appreciate how you have an ability to, um, to integrate and to, with such clarity and wisdom and wit, um, yeah, psychology, theology, history, scripture, everything. Yeah. It's just, it's a, absolute it's just a joy so thanks for your time 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm really honored of to meet, you know, the, the legend Rod Wilson, you know, <laughs> the legend, the man, Rod Wilson. <laughs> He's no was, longer just a picture in the in the library for you, hey Octavio. Ex- exactly. Cuz when I arrive at go that nice tiny picture in the library. Yeah, that nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I arrived at Regent Rod was gone, so I never met him, but it's been a privilege. And uh, hopefully, I mean, you're so easy to talk to. So hopefully, we can get you uh, on the podcast again to talk about I don't know, even cars. I don't care. It's great to talk to you, man. <laughs> anger. We need him to talk about anger. That's no, we didn't talk. We didn't even touch about yeah, t- yeah, yeah, anger. Yeah, that's a big issue. No, thanks, I'm glad thanks. to be involved with you. Yeah, it's great. To, great to chat. Important subject for all of us. For sure. Yes, Rod. Thanks so much for your time. You're very welcome, Claire. Nice to have you. Nice to chat with both of you. I enjoyed it. Thank you, man. Thanks for listening to the Regent College Podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit regent.net. That's R-G-N-T dot net. <laughs>